The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop Season 2, a podcast on the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. On the wall of a former advertising executive in California, an executive whose penchant for order extended all the way to the ends of the hairs aligned in his brush haircut, stiff enough to clean the grill, hung a quotation from a former president. The quotation read, Until he has been a part of a cause larger than himself, no man is truly whole. The line is from Richard M. Nixon, his inaugural address in January of 1969. The copy on the wall is written in President Nixon's own hand, and it was given to its owner, H.R. Haldeman, at the request of Haldeman's wife, Joe, who asked of it from the president. Though Haldeman would go to jail for his boss, his wife nevertheless wrote in the preface of Haldeman's diary, which was later published, Without question, she wrote, serving as assistant to the president and White House chief of staff gave Bob the opportunity to participate in, quote, a cause larger than himself, unquote. In February of 1971, President Nixon posed a question to his chief of staff, H.R. Bob Haldeman. How could he record conversations in the Oval Office for posterity? Two years earlier, Nixon had asked Haldeman that the taping system be removed. There was one in the White House from its predecessor, LBJ, and President Johnson had told Nixon about the taping device on the way to their inauguration. Nixon wanted it out. But now, two years later, the president wanted his own recording device. Why the change? By that time, Nixon had learned that the true story of the White House was impossible to get out when faced with a hostile press. All presidents learned this, but he felt he was particularly aggrieved at the hands of an adversarial press. So in the future, either the press would mangle or misreport what had happened, or administration leakers would tell a different story. And this was important It was important to get the story straight on tape for posterity. Former Nixon aide William Sapphire put it this way, quote, because he was convinced left-leaning historians would try to deny him his place in history, because he wanted to write memoirs better than Churchill's, and because he was sure he would have the same total control over his tapes that Kennedy and Johnson had had of theirs, Nixon installed the taping system. Haldeman agreed with Nixon's request and in the agreement demonstrated two of his key qualities that made him such an important person in Nixon's orbit. First, he agreed with Nixon that events would have to be recorded for history, and agreed with Nixon's view that, that there was a systemic group of people aligned in Confederacy against him and his desires. The taping system would be a way to push back against that conspiracy, a way to tell the true story. Second, Haldeman responded with efficiency. The boss wants it, it should be done. This part, it turns out, was harder than it looked. Nixon was flummoxed by technology, as Christopher Whipple describes in his book Gatekeepers, which is a book about the White House Office of Chief of Staff, goes through all the administrations. In Gatekeepers, Whipple describes that Nixon could not operate a simple dictation machine. He would erase half the memo he was dictating, or he would forget to turn the machine on at all. So Haldeman had a great idea. What if the recording machine was voice-activated? No remembering. It would just simply record everything the president said. This would, of course, doom Nixon. 
As one Nixon staffer told Michael Duffy and Nancy Gibbs in The President's Club, their book about former presidents, for want of a toggle switch, the presidency was lost. Bob Haldeman was responsible for creating the modern White House Chiefs of Staff office. His story and the role of the White House Chief of Staff are our topic today. We're going to inspect this part. What happens to a Chief of Staff in the frustrating presidential system where active presidents can't get what they want? Does the Chief of Staff help the president circumvent the system? Yes. But at what point does efficiency, loyalty, and support for the cause go over the line? When a Chief of Staff, the most powerful staffer in the White House, forgets his duty to the country, he or she becomes the handmaiden to abuse. In January of 1937, we're going to step back here into a little history of the Office of Chief of Staff. Since Haldeman created the modern Chief of Staff, what was it like before that? So in January of 1937, the report of the President's Committee on Administrative Management, headed by Louis Brownlow, created the office, the executive office of the President. And the point of the White House staff, as the Brownlow report would put it, was simple. The President needs help. The White House staff would provide him with that help. But the help was limited. Six administrative assistants was the prescription, because that was all the president could manage himself. That was the president's job, to manage the staff. So the idea of a chief of staff who would do the managing was not yet invented. Another key thing about the Brownlow report, it makes it clear that the White House staff protected the presidency and not the president. The president's political fortunes or his survival were not their concern. The presidency was. Well, of course, things have changed now. The president has 1,500 people who work directly for him, and the chief of staff is the most powerful job in the administration. In 1953, Dwight Eisenhower appointed the first White House chief of staff with that title. It was the former New Hampshire governor, Sherman Adams. The story of the formation goes like this, and here I'm putting this together from Gatekeepers as well as Gene Edward Smith's uh, biography of Eisenhower. When Ike was new to the job, goes the story, an usher handed him a letter. Never bring me a sealed envelope, Ike said. That's what I have a staff for. Letters should be opened and screened, and only the important stuff should make it to the president. The president does the most important things, Sherman Adams, Ike's chief of staff, told a reporter for the New York Times. I do the next most important things. But it was not really until Nixon's administration that the modern White House structure was formed, the system that's essentially in place today. The architect was Haldeman. Nixon entered the office promising that he would bring more structure. An L.A. Times piece from just after Nixon's victory is headlined, The Nixon Team. Decision-making will be different. Here's an excerpt from that L.A. Times story. General Eisenhower pyramided his staff, and all decisions came up through Adams. The staff met in Adams' office every morning. Work was parceled out by him, and matters to be decided by the president reached General Eisenhower in terse and ordered form having been processed through the staff. Presidents Kennedy and Johnson tossed this kind of formality out the window, each freewheeled through the White House handing out his own staff assignments and dealing directly with particular advisors or groups of advisors. Nixon is thinking in terms of introducing more advanced management procedures and of a tighter staff arrangement. Nixon had been Ike's vice president, of course, and so he could see how the job, when correctly ordered, could funnel information, frame decisions, and allow the chief of staff to act as a broker among quarreling cabinet members. Nixon's cabinet was full of strong voices from Texas Governor John Connolly to Henry Kissinger. Nixon wanted someone to help keep charge of them. Here's how Haldeman wrote about it from Haldeman's diaries. 
which are themselves a marvel. And for anybody interested in history and the operation of White Houses and the Nixon and, and White House and Watergate and that whole period of time, Haldeman kept extensive records. At the end of every day, no matter how busy he was or how drained he was, he went home and dictated the events of the day. It is an amazing living record. Anyway, from that collection, Eisenhower had told Nixon that every president has to have his own son of a bitch, Haldeman wrote. Uh, Adams, Sherman Adams, by the way, had been known as the abominable no man. Again, back to Haldeman. Nixon had looked over everyone in his entourage and decided that Haldeman was a pluperfect son of a bitch. And because of that somewhat unflattering appraisal, remember this is Haldeman writing, and because of that somewhat unflattering appraisal, my career took rise. Haldeman's various names, chief son of a bitch and the Lord High Executioner. So who was this fellow? Well, he was an executive in the Los Angeles firm of J. Walter Thompson, the advertising firm. He was a regent at the University of California, president of the UCLA Alumni Association and founding chairman of the California Institute of the Arts. He'd been an advanced man in the 1956 race, a job that required incredible organizational talents and logistics uh, focus, which he had and enjoy. And he'd done such a good job. He'd been Nixon's campaign manager in his 1962 losing race for California governor. During the Nixon administration, the president and Haldeman were together for all but about 20 days. Haldeman, a Christian scientist who never touched alcohol, was devoted to the job. A passage from Haldeman's wife's book, she wrote her own book uh, just recently about their years in the White House, conveys this sense of connection. Here's Joe Haldeman quoting, Joe being the wife, quoting Haldeman. This is a quote from Haldeman now, and then she's going to follow up with a review of it. My whole existence is pointed towards carrying out another man's directives and being of service to him. Haldeman's obviously there writing about Nixon. That automatically changes one. I get impatient with trivia, and I get impatient with people who don't figure out their own solutions and get them done. The great leaders are gone. The towering leaders are going. There aren't any great leaders now, except Richard Nixon. And here's what Joe Haldeman, Haldeman's wife, wrote about that quote in her book. Quote, Bob's commitment to a cause larger than himself is so strong and all-consuming, I sometimes think that I might be losing him to President Nixon. She describes that as her state of mind in March 1971. Even when Haldeman was supposed to have a day off, it didn't work, as he writes in his diary, about a call home from the president one day. Here's Haldeman. He said he was going to give me the day off with the family, but I ended up with seven pages of notes from their phone conversation when he called him at home. Nixon could tell Haldeman anything. He knew it wouldn't leak to the press, certainly, but also not leak to anyone else in the administration. But they were not friends, writes Whipple, Nixon saw the White House as a Fortune 500 company, with the Oval Office as the corner office and Haldeman as the chief operating officer. The presidency is a brutal job framed around impossible decisions. Here's how Richard Neustadt puts it. What presidents do every day is make decisions that are mostly thrust upon them. The deadline's all too often outside of their control on options mostly framed by others. To make these decisions, a president needs to think and needs to have decisions put before him in the best possible way. President Eisenhower told Kennedy, no easy decisions will come to you as president. Here's the way Obama put it. Nothing comes to my desk that is perfectly solvable. Otherwise, someone else would have solved it. So you wind up dealing with probabilities and give any given decision you make will wind up with a 30 to 40% chance that it's not going to work. You have to own that and feel comfortable with the way you made the decision. You can't be paralyzed by the fact that it might not work out. 
Given the weight of decisions, the system can't waste the president's time. George W. Bush used to ask, is this something you need to be wasting the president's time on? That's why President Obama said the key advice he gave President Trump was to have a system in place so that he could execute and warned him against an improvisational presidency. The idea being that the decisions are too difficult to leave to improvisation. This was Haldeman's first innovation back at the beginning of the, of the Nixon presidency, was to create a system so that it would deliver good product to the president so the president could make a decision. Here's Haldeman telling his staff what their job was. Our job is not to do the work of government, but to get the work out to where it belongs, out to the departments. Nothing goes to the president that is not completely staffed out first for accuracy and form, for lateral coordination, checked for related material, reviewed by competent staff concerned with that area, and all that is essential for presidential attention. That notion of lateral coordination is crucial. That's something we'll get back to in a minute. I want to emphasize his his line, all that is essential for presidential attention. Any highly functioning person worries about protecting attention. Attention is the golden commodity in life. We know good decisions can only be made when they receive focused attention, and modernity and the busyness of the world contributes to shredding that attention. For presidents, the shred is intense. Everyone wants a piece of you. And the range of duties is perverse. One minute you're in the Situation Room, the next minute you're holding up the jersey of a Super Bowl team that's visiting the White House. The leader of Turkey is on line one, and you've got to pardon the Thanksgiving turkey later that afternoon. I'm reminded that when William Jennings Bryan's opponent heard that he delivered 16 speeches in a day, they quipped, when does he think? No human has the psychological talent to, to, to handle this range of duties, and the job requires you to be both an introvert and an extrovert. People are rarely able to switch as much as a presidency requires you. So listen to how Obama talked about tailoring the smallest moments of his life to manage the decision-making ability. You'll see I only wear gray or blue suits, Obama said in an interview for Vanity Fair, a great piece that Michael Lewis wrote. I'm trying to pare down decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I'm eating or wearing because I have too many other decisions to make. He mentioned research that shows the simple act of making decision degrades one's ability to make further decisions. It's why shopping is so exhausting. You need to focus your decision-making energy. You need to routinize yourself. You can't be going through the day distracted by trivia. Nixon had an interesting approach on this and was consumed with the notion of presidential time and how to squeeze more out of it. Here's an entry from Haldeman's diary about a conversation that he and Nixon had one day. The president is fascinated by the catch report of people who need no sleep at all, hates to waste time, acutely aware of the necessity of being sharp all the time, feels, though, that people take breaks to avoid the problems and decision, not because they need rest, thinks you have to be, quote, up, unquote, not relaxed to function best. He's thought a lot about this and is pretty firm in his views. States no feeling of value of vacation or rest, but realizes that he probably has to have it. So there you see Nixon consumed with the same notion of energy, how you have it, when you use it, how to husband it, and what effect it has on your ability to make presidential decisions. A second crucial thing that Haldeman put in place in addition to a system and systematizing decisions that would go before the president, the second most important thing he emphasized was that there would be, quote, no end runs. The decision-making process had to be tight so that, A, no one was trying to get to the pre president on their own, which was inefficient and wasted the president's time, but also, B, end runs led to bad decisions because end run appeals were not fully vetted. Remember those that notion of collateral interest that I mentioned before. That's why you vet decisions, because they have collateral effects that a president doesn't know and that a president can't know and shouldn't have the shouldn't waste the time trying to figure out 
But when you do an end run and have a conversation with the president, the president can think, oh, yeah, that sounds reasonable. But they haven't and shouldn't have the time to weigh all the collateral effects. That's why the original travel ban from the Trump White House was such a disaster. The White House aides didn't check throughout the administration to learn what they didn't know, and they wound up stepping on a lot of toes, like those of the Iraqi prime minister. Iraqis were fighting with the U.S. soldiers to beat back ISIS in Mosul. But the Trump administration put Iraq on the list of countries from which people would be banned if they tried to enter the United States. So on the one hand, we're working with them, and in another, we're punching them in the nose. What's so funny about this is, of course, is that Watergate, which took down a president and caused Haldeman to go to jail, was the ultimate end run. And it was the end run trying to get the CIA to tell the FBI to lay off its investigation, and then the firing of the various attorney generals that got everyone in trouble and sent Haldeman to jail. At a symposium on chiefs of staff, Richard Neustadt says that Haldeman once said that the, had the Watergate operation been run through the process that he set up, it never would have happened. We'll talk about that later. It should also be noted that the back-channeling was righteous in the Nixon White House, separate and apart from Watergate. Secretary of State William Rogers and National Security Advisor Kissinger were constantly plotting and planning to get to the president and circumvent the other. Patrick Moynihan, Nixon's domestic advisor, and Arthur Burns, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, were also engaged in the same kind of inter-administration end-run competition. But I don't want to miss making the point about end runs and attention. Systems matter because it's not just the president who matters when he changes his mind. Lots of other people are affected and other considerations are put in jeopardy. Improvisation may seem great to the president, but it exacts a cost on all his other people uh, that have to go cover and fix and otherwise backfill for the president's improvisational move. So improvisation leads to bad decision because it creates chaos and shreds attention. It puts the rest of the system off guard. The other major innovation is that Haldeman, like Adams before him during the Eisenhower administration and every chief of staff afterward, saw as a key part of their job blocking off parts of the president's schedule. Here's Haldeman. The key staff can always communicate with and see the president when necessary. The priorities will be weighed on the basis of what visit will accomplish most. We've got to preserve his time for the things that matter. Now, that does not mean that everything will be reduced for him to the lowest common denominator. The president wants to make decisions himself, not preside over decisions made by the staff. How we decide what is major and what is minor is the key to whether this is a good White House staff or a lousy one. Haldeman, in talking to his staff, concluded by reading from the Brownlow Committee report. That's, of course, remember the one, the uh, report to FDR, describing the ideal qualities of a White House aide. Such an aide would, quote, remain in the background, issue no orders, make no decisions, emit no public statements, should be possessed of a high competence, great physical vigor, and a passion for anonymity. Well, we just have to read that, of course, because we know what happens to Nixon's White House staff, and also we know what's happened to the staff of the president since then, particularly, of course, the chief of staff, which is now a fixture uh, on various television programs. In the context of walling off people from the president, here's another entry from Haldeman's diary from April 23rd, 1969. Several discussions about how to handle cabinet officers. He's talking about discussions with the president. Agnew wants a regular weekly appointment. Volpe wants a regular monthly appointment. President says we have to have a Sherman Adams, again, referring to Eisenhower's chief of staff, to handle this and keep them away from him so that E and I are on it, uh, E being Ehrlichman. I take the big four, he takes the rest. Ehrlichman takes the rest. President said he can see why all presidents want to be left alone. The routine baloney really bores him and annoys him. 
So that's Haldeman talking about Nixon's desire to get away from the pecking of the presidency. Again, why is this important? Because this is the establishment of the modern chief of staff office, and it's about why the structure in the White House is important. It is important, again, to keep this shredding from happening, to give the president time to think. So in the current context of this president, who is improvisational and who has uh, no real system that we can divine, compare that to the excruciating thought put into the system here as Haldeman and then every other chief of staff has tried to maintain it. If you're going to maintain the brick wall and keep staffers from making end runs to the president, you have to be empowered. And Nixon made sure that Haldeman was. From now on, Nixon told his cabinet in 1971, Haldeman is the Lord High Executioner. Don't you come whining to me when he tells you to do something. He will do it because I asked him to, and you're to carry it out. Haldeman filled the role. Here's a memo that he wrote on June 7, 1970. Memorandum for Mr. Magruder. This is to Jeb Magruder, who would later get caught up in the whole Watergate business. I am reluctantly and regretfully sending the attached memorandum to the president. I never intend to send another memorandum like this to the president, and I don't intend to tolerate this kind of total failure on the part of our staff ever again. I'm not interested in any explanation, excuse, or discussion of this on of this one, and I'm especially not interested in any more BS in the form of reports that tell me something that has been done when, in fact, it hasn't. So here's an interesting character trait about Nixon, and I think it matters with respect to this idea of uh, presidents, systems, and the chief of staff. Nixon was obsessed with process. Here's what Teddy White wrote uh, in uh, Breach of Faith, his book about Watergate. Underlying all of Nixon's political qualities, good and bad, is curiosity, a fascination with how things work. In any private conversation with Nixon, this characteristic surfaces almost immediately. How do things get done? White recounts conversations he had with Nixon on topics that included how the airlines managed to take an untrained girl and mold her into a polished stewardess in six weeks. How the plane-to-ground communication works on the sociology of politics. About how blue-collar voters and Italians and Catholics and suburban dwellers voted. This is a great insight, and it also seems to me to be true of all presidents. There may, however, be different presidential types. There are those who believe in systems, programmatic ways of doing things, and those who seek to know how things are done because each complicated problem has a secret that can be unlocked. There are fixers who can be found to work through the bureaucracy. Nixon was obsessed with the bureaucracy and how it was trying to stop him. Uh, We've checked, said Nixon, and found that 96% of the bureaucracy are against us. They're bastards who are here to screw us. That would sound very familiar to anyone who has heard President Trump's advisor Steve Bannon talk about the administrative state trying to thwart Donald Trump. And of course, I'll reread to you the Schlesinger quote from last week's Whistle Stop, or the last episode of Whistle Stop, I should say. Here's Schlesinger, the presidential government coming to Washington to glow with new ideas and a euphoric sense that it could not go wrong, promptly collided with the feudal barons of the permanent government. So Nixon, having the same frustration, looking for a fixer. Here's how Nixon put this idea of looking for a fixer to Teddy White. If you knew how to get the proper buttons, you could press them. So this is what Donald Trump is. And I want to just take a tiny aside. If you are a conspiratorial type, Nixon was, President Trump is, the fixer idea comes right into that. Because in other words, what's the idea of a conspiracy? That there is a truth behind a whole bunch of activity. And that if you just know the truth, all of the confusion falls into a simple, understandable narrative. So if you are prone to conspiracy thought, you obviously think in terms of the operation of the White House that there is a conspiracy going on and all you need to do is find the real truth behind it. 
find that button and then you push it. The president, of course, the current President Trump, talks a lot about how in his personal career, his business career, he learned how to game the system using a shortcut, changing the rules on whether it was the rules on bankruptcy or immigration. I shouldn't say changing so much as, as taking advantage of the rules and using them in a way that might not be within the spirit of the law, but was within still the letter of the law. Of course, there's considerable debate about the letter part of that. But he has bragged about his ability to short-circuit the process to get what he wants. So why does this all matter? It matters because when you're a president, you come up against constant barriers. So do you improve the system and work the process, or do you look for a short-circuit, a solution, like removing the toggle switch to the to the recording device in the, in the White House that makes things easier, but then opens you to exposure? So just to put this frustration in perspective, political philosopher Hannah Arendt once remarked that the President of the United States is simultaneously the strongest and the weakest of all national leaders. Woodrow Wilson, who wrote that a president, quote, is at liberty to be as big a man as he can be, later wrote that in the Senate, a little group of willful men representing no opinion but their own have rendered the great government of the United States helpless and contemptible. In other words, Wilson, when he was a political uh, scientist, thought the presidency was this big, powerful job. But then when he got in the actual presidency, he recognized the barriers, the limitations, the constraints. Here's my favorite version of this, Lyndon Johnson. The office is kind of like the little country boy found the Hoochie Coochie show at the carnival. Once he'd paid his dime and got inside the tent, it ain't exactly as it was advertised. So President Nixon and President Trump have been com- have uh, complained about the constraints, and our and President Trump has been doing it lately um, about the slow pace of things. He recently advocated changing the Senate rules to pass everything by a simple majority. Um, so uh, we should note, of course, that the constraints that many of these presidents complain about are were put there by design in the original design of the American system to slow demagogues and also to keep the majority from overriding the minority. So why is the lack of action frustrating? Well, you want to get things done as president, obviously. Wrapped up in the question, though, are the perceptions about the presidency and what can and should be achieved? This is a question of evaluating the president. Is our standard the right one? And is the president living up to it in terms of action? But it's also about how the president himself thinks about the job and how he is fed emotionally and psychologically by it. Here's where I'm going with this. Teddy White, again, in in Breach of Faith, The Fall of Richard Nixon, writes about what animates Nixon. Quote, what he shared with other politicians was the desire to write his name on other men's lives, to find identity in the action. As Nixon had said in his campaign speeches, the next president must take an activist view of his office. So it was emotionally fulfilling for Nixon. Uh, to get things done. This wasn't simply about putting points on the board. It was about personal fulfillment. Nixon wanted to start a new American revolution that would include welfare reform, more power to the states, less to the federal government, energy independence, national health care, education reform, and more. As Stephen Ambrose points out, this passage in the diaries, in the um, in the Haldeman diaries about Nixon's pessimism about his chances for success. There are only 537 elected officials here, wrote, uh, said the president to Haldeman. All the other people are career diplomats and career bureaucrats who you can't get rid of and who you can't change. The enemy then is the invisible bureaucracy, the self-perpetuating people that are not elected and that blatantly brag that they'll be here and are not going to change regardless of who comes in and out. They'll bury the new recommendations under a mountain of paperwork. And Nixon fantasized about how the winning the 1972 election would liberate him. 
The interesting point, this is Haldeman writing about Nixon talking about it, was, quote, that after the election, we will have awesome power with no discipline. That is, there won't be another election coming up to discipline us. So we can't go through every instance in which Haldeman helped Nixon circumvent the obstacles in front of him, but I just wanted to lay out here in the, in the inception of the office of the chief of staff that these problems have been challenging presidents and the reaction to them and the way in which the president uses his staff to get around what is a common problem of the presidency uh, is a function, is a part of the presidential system. Um, and we see a lot of analogies between President Trump and President Nixon, a lot of them, of course, by people who want to um, criticize the president. But I guess the point here is that that if you think about the current White House and its systems, compare those to the ones uh, that Nixon and Haldeman created, and you see quite a difference. So, so there's a long history of Nixon and, and Haldeman working on everything from campus protests to Vietnam to, cat, to the cat and mouse with the Soviets and the Chinese, and we can't get into all of that, But although I will try later. Um, and there's a bit of an, we're doing a bit of an injury to this relationship by not going through all of those, but we've got to get to, the, to Watergate because um, uh, we can't make this a 15-hour episode. And what I'm trying to do is, is examine this sliver of the president and chief of staff relationship. So we'll come back to things like the Camp David peace negotiations and wage and price control and riffing on the, the My Lai massacre and the Supreme Court rejections. But let's just jump right to the June 20 meeting, the famous meeting where the Watergate break-in is touched on, and there are two important parts of the Haldeman and Nixon relationship here in this June 20 meeting. First, the break-in. The break-in itself was actually a circumvention of exactly the kind of thing that Haldeman had tried to stop. Basically, Haldeman had become pretty good as a chief of staff at ignoring Nixon's crazy orders. In fact, Kissinger later would joke that Watergate represented a moment when Nixon ordered someone to do something, and Kissinger said, and the damn fool went ahead and did it. They knew, like all good staffers, that you basically have to blow off what the president says sometimes. But Nixon went around Haldeman. He did his own end runs by using Chuck Colson and John Ehrlichman to do uh, the dirty work. So the actual person who gave the break-in order into the Democratic headquarters was never had, has never really been pinned down. It's a source of much debate. But the fact that it could have come out organically of the committee to re-elect the president or the kind of shadow Nixon operation going on it was the result of that. And the private espionage arm, essentially, that Nixon had encouraged and that Haldeman had not quashed fully and therefore let to exist. So the man who cared about end runs either let it happen or wasn't powerful enough to keep the funny business on the side from continuing to happen. So that's one question uh, or one challenge to, to Haldeman's system. But here's the big challenge, which is once the break-in happened, Haldeman tried to clean it up. And here's the diary entry from the June 20 meeting. The conclusion was that we'd, we've got to hope the FBI doesn't go beyond the necessary in developing evidence and that we can keep a lid on that as well as keeping all the characters involved from getting carried away with any unnecessary testimony. That's basically we've got to, uh, if not outright obstruct, obstruct justice, then we've got to limit the FBI investigation. So obviously when President Trump talked to the director of the FBI about going easy on Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor, that was a similar thing. We've got to limit this investigation. The difference here, of course, is that this is Haldeman talking about it to himself in his journal, not a president talking about it to an FBI director, which is uh, quite a bit more serious. But then on June 21st, the president told Haldeman, 
about his strategy for this. So here the president is coming on stage. Every time we have a leak in our organization, we should charge that we're being bugged, even if you plant one and discover it, said Nixon. So here's Nixon engaging in the cover-up. And then on the 23rd, Haldeman and Ehrlichman both told the CIA to tell the FBI that bugging, the bugging, meaning the bugging of the Democratic National Committee, was a CIA operation that the FBI should back off. Here's Haldeman. We talked to CIA Deputy Director Vernon Walters and had that worked out. So there's your obstruction. And that started the whole thing down the slippery slope. And from there, there was no turning back. And an aside on that June 20th date, simultaneously, while Haldeman is beginning the cleanup effort, the president has a conversation with Chuck Colson, his uh, hatchet man and uh, dirty tricks operative, that basically they think that G. Gordon Liddy should take the entire blame for the Watergate bugging. Um, and and then it's also in that meeting uh, that the President Nixon um, says, I think we could develop a theory as to the CIA if we wanted to. That's Colson saying that. Uh, we know that Hunt has all those ties with these people. He was their boss, and they were all CIA. That's where uh, this notion of the CIA, which ultimately then becomes what, what Haldeman and Ehrlichman say about having the CIA tell the FBI to lay off. So stepping back now from a moment uh, from the White House break-in and Haldeman's effort or his putting in process the obstruction that would ultimately lead to the downfall uh, for him and the White House, does the chief of staff need to have a moral instinct or can the chief of staff just be a political hack, a person who just protects the presidency. The political reflex instinct leads, of course, to political decisions. And the love of the president and the loyalty is an instinct which is crucial for the chief of staff, but it also means the chief of staff will do anything to protect the president. So that's what happened here. Haldeman's instincts kicked in to solve a problem for the president. The problem was that some fool had gone and broken into the Democratic National Committee to try and plant bugs. Now, never mind the fact that that fool was acting on the at least implicit instructions uh, of the president, because the president had been explicit about other bugging he wanted done, particularly with respect to uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who was responsible for the Pentagon Papers, which was the beginning of Nixon's effort to do an end run around the things that were thwarting him. In other words, the Pentagon Papers had gotten in the way of his Vietnam policy. The press was thwarting him. Uh, and so he wanted to strike back by finding some dirt by taking extra measures to get a fix for what ailed him. So the crucial day back on June 20 of the Haldeman story is, of course, the, the crucial day in which 19 minutes were missing from the White House tapes. The recording kicks off the beginning, the diary entry in the June 21st and June 23rd slippery slope that Haldeman starts the administration down. The courts and the Senate ultimately, of course, continue their investigation. Nixon tries to protect Haldeman and his other aides, but ultimately decides that in April of 1973, he has to let him go. So we've gone from June 20th, 1972 to now almost a year later, April 26th. In 1973, the Watergate scandal has completely overtaken this systemic approach to the White House that Haldeman had put in place. The diary entry on April 26 reads, another all-day shot on the Watergate issue. So it has completely taken over. And finally, on the 29th of April, Nixon calls Haldeman to Camp David. And here is Haldeman's account of the meeting at Camp David. The P was in terrible shape, P being the president shook hands with me, 
which is the first time he's ever done that. So think about that. These two men who have this intertwined relationship, it's the first time uh, that they shook, they'd shaken hands. It can't possibly be the first time, but maybe it was the first time that Haldeman had shaken hands on the beginning of a meeting, or since they saw each other so frequently, a handshake would seem ridiculously formal. In any event, it was a personal connection of a kind that was foreign enough to Haldeman that he wrote it down at the top of that diary entry, which gives you some sense of this strange relationship between the two men picking up on the diary entry. The president told me to come look at the view out the window, then stepped to the door and said, let's go outside and look at the flowers and all. So we were looking at the tulips from the Aspen porch, Aspen being one of the name of the rooms at Camp David, talking about the beauty and all. And as we started back in, he said, well, I have to enjoy it because I may not be alive much longer. We got inside and he went through a discourse saying that while nobody knows it, he is not a publicly religious man, that it's a fact that he has prayed on his knees every night that he's been in the presidential office. He's prayed hard over this decision, and it's the toughest decision he's ever made. He made the points on why he had to do it, but he's come to the conclusion that he has had to to have our resignations. That would be Haldeman and then domestic uh, aide Ehrlichman, also John Dean, the president's lawyer. He wants us to stay on to handle the transition. Then we went through his whole pitch about how he's really the guilty one. He said he's thought it all through and that he was the one that started Colson on his projects. Remember Chuck Colson, the projects, the end run projects, uh, the dirty tricks projects, the stuff that went around Haldeman's system. He was the one who told Dean to cover up. Dean being the White House lawyer who paid off uh, various uh, people involved in the Democratic break-in and the other dirty tricks. He was the one who made Mitchell attorney general and later his campaign manager and so on. And that he now has to face that and live with it. This is Haldeman learning that he's going to be fired. Still loyal, still thinking about the system. Haldeman says that this is what he argued. I left having assured him that I disagreed with his decision, as I had with a few other decisions he'd made, but that I had my input and that I would abide by the decision. I would do everything I could to implement it and make sure it came out right. So dutiful chief of staff to the end, So much so, here's a passage from the final days, Woodward and Bernstein's book about the end of the Nixon administration. Haldeman was so concerned about this predilection of Nixon's to retreat into himself that he spent the days immediately before and after his resignation as chief of staff trying to find his own successor. The new White House chief of staff had to be someone who would oppose Nixon's preference for dealing with paper rather than people. He had to be capable of presenting to the president a full range of options for each decision of knowing how and when to ignore Nixon's intemperate orders. Haldeman, at the end, resigning because uh, of his role in Watergate, is nevertheless still trying to create a system that handles the president, that can deal with the president. And you should note, of course, there, that that is a modification on the idea of of Haldeman as a brick wall that kept people from Nixon. It was Nixon who wanted to keep people from Nixon. And Haldeman, in fact, had been trying to push against his boss's effort to be walled in. The next day, after the meeting at Camp David, the president announced the resignations in a national address. Then, after the address, Nixon and Haldeman spoke, a conversation that is captured on that recording device that was activated by voice. And here is the extraordinary conversation between the two men. But let me say, you're a strong man, God damn it, and I love you. (laughs) 
And I, you know, I love John. We're all the rest. And by God, keep the faith. Keep the faith. You're going to win this son of a bitch. Absolutely. You notice what I said about the violence and so forth on the other side. Yeah. I mean, there were some. There were some intricacies in this that only this physical no, will understand. I, I got those, and I want to get the text because there's some things to work on from there. But. Right. That uh, we can build. I thought it was good too to, to to sort of end on what I deeply felt. You know, the religious note. You know, yeah. God bless America. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm sure it must have been, you know, driven you up the wall. Didn't drive me up the wall, but I sure, felt that way. I know that I'm all for that. Completely agree. I don't know whether you can call and get any reactions and call me back, or, you know, like the old style. Would you mind? I don't think I can. I don't. I no, don't, I agree. I don't. I'm an odd spot don't, to try and do don't that. call a goddamn soul to hell with it. Let me just say, getting this call from me, from you, I, mean, I haven't heard from any cabinet officer except Weinberger uh, an hour afterwards. And thank God, and no staff member. Well, now when I so, called, the board said they were instructed not to put any calls through. So the hell with that. I told them to put all the calls through. Well, that may be why you haven't gotten them, though, because that's the all right. you told me. I'll change it. I'll change it. Right. Fine, but God bless you, boy. Okay. God bless you. I love you, you, you know. Okay. Like my brother. And we'll all right, boy. On and up from Keep here. the faith. Right. On the eve of Nixon's resignation, Haldeman asked for a full pardon from President Nixon, with a full pardon also of Vietnam War draft dodgers. He argued that pardoning the Dodgers would take some of the heat off of Nixon for pardoning Haldeman. Nixon refused. On January 1, 1975, Haldeman was convicted of conspiracy and obstruction of justice. He was sentenced to serve two and a half to eight years, reduced to one to four years after an appeal. He worked as a chemist in the federal prison, in the sewage treatment facility, and on December 20th, 1978, after serving 18 months, he was released on parole. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Email us at whistlestop at slate.com, or even better, or both, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head on over to iTunes and search for Whistle Stop. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Pan and Play Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Bowers. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who works just as hard as Bob Haldeman and without covering up anything. And thanks to Izzy Road for helping me sort through all of the newspaper clippings. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. For Whistle Stop, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I will be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. Whistle Stop.